Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mike Scott. Many of you know him, but uh, for some background, Mike just uh, couldn't stop following my footsteps. <laughs> we were both from, from Texas. We both went to the same med school. He came here for did EMI and critical care. The, the first I actually called Mike McCurdy when I was a uh, third-year med student, and he basically told me that I probably wasn't going to be good enough to get into the EMI and program. <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. Oh. <laughs> you proved me wrong. <laughs> or did we? <laughs> well, welcome, Mike. Anyway. Uh, so, my life is an awkward start. It's okay. So, start out with a case. You are the on-call ICU person, be it fellow attending wherever you are. You get called with a consult to the IMC. For a 42-year-old female with a history of NC adrenal disease, diabetes, hypertension, she is admitted to the IMC after being a bounce back. She had been seen in the ED the previous day, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, had a D-dimer scent that was markedly positive. Uh, for some reason, she adamantly refused CT scan at the time. Um, it was actually pretty well documented that they disclosed risk of death, et cetera, et cetera. But she went home. She had a troponin drawn while she was there because, hey, why not? It was negative. She goes home, has a syncopal episode. Family calls EMS. She comes back in. They convince her to get a CAT scan this time, and it shows a large saddle pulmonary embolus. So they ask you to come see the patient. She's got relatively regular vital signs, normal vital signs. Looks pretty clinically non-toxic. Um, so uh, now she has a not incidentally positive troponin and a positive BNP. So who wants to leave her in the IMC on anticoagulation? One, okay, good. Who wants to admit, move her to the ICU on anticoagulation? One, two, three. Who wants to admit her into the ICU with 100 milligrams of TPA? Zero. Good. And who wants more information? Yeah. No, good. I like it. Don't need it. So we're going to be talking about submassive PE. Um, it's going to be somewhat similar to my talk in February, uh, a couple of updates. Um, I have no disclosures. Um, so this was a real patient I saw about one month into being an attending. And as the echo tech was doing the echo while I interviewed the patient, saw something pretty similar to this. So a nice, large, bright thrombus sitting there in the RA and RV. So I stepped out of the room to call the on-call cardiologist to ask him to come down and just confirm that this wasn't a myxoma or I wasn't misreading this, that this was indeed a clot in transit. And I had called my charge nurse and told them we were probably going to be bringing over, her over for TPA. Uh, at that point, about 10 seconds into that call, the husband comes out of the room, says, hey, doc, something's wrong. I go back in. She's unresponsive. She has no pulse. We start CPR. We get 50 milligrams TPA. We never get return of circulation. The next day, the next day, this is her postmortem examination. So. Um, what we're going to discuss today is submassive PE. 
and particularly what are the options with regards to thrombolysis. Um, we are not going to discuss massive PE as Zach Kahn covered somewhat last week. It's a, really a completely different beast depending on the study, maybe at least a 10 times increase in mortality when you throw hemodynamic instability into the mix. So really a separate topic. Um, we're not really going to talk about surgical or catheter em embolectomy, and the reason for that is as little data, as little good data as there is for submassive PE in general, there's just no good data with regards to surgical embolectomy or catheter embolectomy. Ten years from now, 15 years from now, these may be the treatments of choice. I don't know, but there's, there's just not, you should know that these modalities are out there, especially if they're available at your center, but I don't think there's a, enough data to make even the beginning of a um, educated guess about whether these modalities are right for your patient or not. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to be discussing large, robust, randomized clinical trials, and because of that, we're not going to be discussing firm conclusions. Okay, these are all my opinions. We'll go over the fact that they're very different from the current guidelines. Okay, so take them with a very, very large grain of salt. But as with anything, guidelines can lag behind clinical. Uh, you know, clinical progress. So I think it's worth at least, if nothing else, even if you decide you uh, disagree with my opinions, I want you to know what good data there is in this area to be able to make the right choices for your patients. So we'll get to the guidelines. First, just quickly going over terminology. Um, as Zach talk, touched on last week, um, we're not talking about radiographic definitions. There's a radiographic definition of, of massive I don't actually know what it is because in, the short, in terms of short-term outcomes, it's less important than the hemodynamic definition. So when, we're t when I'm using the term massive PE, I'm referring to hemodynamic instability. When I'm using the term submassive, I'm referring to normal hemodynamics, but some form of RV strain, be it on imaging or on um, laboratory values. Uh, and then the third category is what I refer to as low risk or, or uncomplicated PE, which is none of the above, basically. So what are we trying to accomplish by giving thrombolytics or other recanalization therapies like embolectomies? If we're honest with ourselves, it's, we're trying to avoid what happened to my patient. We don't want somebody coming in, talking to you, looking good, and then dying right in front of you. Okay, the question is, can we do that without causing harm? Um, there's some thought that we might be able to avoid long-term sequelae, right, sequelae of right heart failure and pulmonary hypertension. There is very, very little, if any, data on what your risk of this is and how that relates to your initial severity of disease and almost none on how your initial treatment changes that long-term risk. So while, yes, there is this possible theory that recanalization therapy up front might decrease this long-term risk. Really, what we're looking at is the short-term risk, much more so. Um, and again, part of that, the more I think about it, I used to think, well, it makes a lot of sense that if I lyse the clot up front, there's going to be a lower rate of pulmonary hypertension long-term. The more I think about it, that's not necessarily the case, right? As we talk about the hemodynamic aspects being more important in the short term, those aren't necessarily going to correlate with the things that make a clot refractory to long-term anticoagulation. So really, we don't know. Um, so really, we're going to focus more on short term. So what do the guidelines say? So ASAP has a guideline out from 2011, um, European Society of Cardiology from 2014, 
ACCP, I believe, from an update in 2015, and then uh, AHA not updated since 2011. ASAP says there's not enough data to give a recommendation one way or the other as to whether we should give thrombolytics to submassive PE, and this is talking about full dose. Uh, AHA, again, back from 2011, a little older, so the, the caveat to that, there's been a number of important studies come out since then, say that it's reasonable to consider it, actually. They kind of give you, leave it up to your judgment as to whether you want to do it, and specifically recommend it in people who are deco decompensating or higher risk. And then the most up-to-date guidelines are the European Society of Cardiology and the ACCP, which both specifically essentially recommend against giving thrombolytics in submassive PE. They recommend really a watch and wait strategy and basically rescue thrombolysis if, they are, if your patient is progressing to massive or massive equi equivalent. So important to, again, underline. When we talk later on about more advanced therapies than just anticoagulation, that is not what the guidelines are recommending right now. Um, sorry, but the important thing is when they, when they talk about that recommendation, they actually underline that there is a signal of improvement in mortality in submassive patients who get thrombolytics. The problem being that the rate of mortality is low enough, 3%, 4%, maybe 5% at most in studies that the number needed to treat becomes so high and the number needed to harm in most of the studies is also, is also is relatively low. There's a pretty higher than expected risk of bleeding in the full dose thrombolysis studies for PE that ultimately the, the risk outweighs the benefit. So how do we change that balance? Well, either one way is to more effectively identify who, what group within the submassive cohort is the group that's more likely to progress to decompensation or death. There are a whole lot of risk scores that have been developed to risk stratify PE. Maybe the most used or most publicized recently are, is the PE severity index or the second iteration of it, the simplified PE severity index, or not mentioned and my favorite, the modified simplified PE severity index. I swear that's a thing. Um, this is a pretty interesting score. Uh, doesn't require advanced imaging, doesn't require a lot of labs. Um, but it's important to note that it was really developed as an ER tool to find people who you can send home. So low risk, especially in SPESI and to some extent in PESI, in different studies identifies a cohort of people that has a 30-day mortality of somewhere between 0.3 and maybe 1.5%. So depending on which validation study you're looking at, relatively good way to call out the people that you don't need to do echoes and, and uh, troponins and BNPs and admission, most importantly, for you can just anticoagulate and send home probably. So not really what we're looking for. Um, right, we're looking not for sensitivity, we're looking for specificity. We're looking for the people that are much more likely to die if we don't fix their hemodynamic effects of their PE. So. Uh, Zach, uh, sorry, so in the European Society guidelines from 2014, they actually put forth a suggested, um, not actually risk score, but just risk stratification. And basically what they say is, if you have only one of lab evidence or imaging evidence of right heart strain, you are intermediate low risk PE. 
And if you have both imaging and laboratory evidence, then you are intermediate high risk, which certainly from a logical standpoint makes sense. I could only find one study trying to validate this from a statistical standpoint, and it didn't uh, work that well. So I, while that's a, a expert guideline suggested way to risk stratify, I don't think it's a very good one. And then Zach last week mentioned the BOVA score, which you guys are gonna be using here in a, in a trial likely coming up. Um, so that one, I think, of the current ones, probably does the best job of identifying a stepwise increase in short-term uh, risk, um, the problem being the primary outcome. So a pretty reasonable score, right? If you're worried about people, these, these are values you're gonna have. Um, so if you have lower end of normal systolic, you get two points. Uh, elevated troponin, two points. Some imaging evidence of RV dysfunction, two points. And then heart rate greater than 110, one point. And stage three is the highest risk, and that's five or more points. When they looked at um, that as a cutoff, so here is the stepwise increase of the risk of the composite endpoint. Um, and it, it is a stepwise increase, but there's a large jump when you get into the third group. So when they look at that, um, group three versus group one and two, the sensitivity for the composite endpoint becomes, uh, excuse me, the specificity becomes rather good with a pretty good positive likelihood ratio. So overall, I think this is probably the best thing you have in terms of trying to identify the highest risk, risk portion of your intermediate risk patients. The problem being that the composite endpoint is mortality, um, hemodynamic decompensation, and recurrent PE. And part of hemodynamic compensation is just, quote, the need for thrombolysis. And they don't define an objective set of criteria for what they use to trigger giving thrombolysis in this study. So it has the same problem that the largest TPA trial of full, to full dose thrombolysis has in that it may rely on subjective physician judgment in giving thrombolytics as an equivalent to mortality, which just depends on how good the clinician is, basically. So I think this may be the best we have. I still have some questions about it. But if of the current scores, I think that's the one I would use. And so if you can ide reliably identify that higher risk cohort, it may make sense to look at more advanced therapy in those people because they're gonna have higher short-term mortality potentially. The other side of this in terms of tipping that risk benefit is if we can keep the same efficacy but find a treatment that has the same efficacy that has a lower risk. And I, I wanna stop here for a second and talk about that risk that was found in those trials. So, so both the ESC and the ACCP guidelines are based in large part are around meta-analysis done in 2012, 2013, 2014, one of them being in JAMA. And again, they found a short-term mortality benefit. In, in thrombolytic group, the short-term mortality meta-analysis pooled was about 2.5% compared to about 3.5% in the anticoagulation-only group. And that was actually statistically significant. But in all these studies, most of them meta-analyses, registries, very few of them randomized controlled trials, but not none of them. Um, they found a risk of, say, intracranial hemorrhage between like 3 and 5% in the full-dose thrombolysis groups. Compare that with, say, um, I think it was Gusto was one of the 10,000 patient 100 milligram TPA for, for MI 
trials, and you get a um, intracranial hemorrhage rate of uh, less than 1%. I, I think it's 0.8 or 0.3. So you're seeing a markedly higher rate of major bleeding in general, intracranial hemorrhage in specific in PE patients given the same amount of TPA compared to the MI patients. There's certainly, it's certainly possible that there's a physiologic reason for that. No one that I have found has ever put forth why that is. Um, and if you look at the only randomized controlled trial of 100 milligrams TPA specifically, right? So part of the problem with the submassive literature is there's urokinase trials, there's tenecteplase trials, there's streptokinase trials, and there's TPA trials. If you look at the single randomized controlled trial of 100 milligrams of TPA, the bleeding rates are very, very similar to those 100 milligram, those 10,000 patient cardiology trials. So I wonder, I don't know, I can't prove it certainly, I wonder whether eventually we're gonna find out that we're overestimating the risk of bleeding with 100 milligrams TPA. That said, it's the data that we have right now, so I, I, I can't go to a patient and say, I don't believe this, so I'm still gonna give you full dose thrombolysis. But can we find treatment that is as effective but lower risk. So what percentage of the body's cardiac output goes to the coronary arteries? Certainly less than 15, right? Okay, what percentage goes to the lungs? 100%, thank you. So um, maybe we don't need as high a dose to get the effect of lysis as the doses we use in MI and stroke. So two ways to change that. Again, we're not gonna talk about surgical and endovascular embolectomy. Those would probably be the lowest bleeding risk, presumably, interventions. So if you have somebody who already has an intracranial hemorrhage, maybe, um, you might need to look into those. I am, I am not aware of a single randomized controlled trial of either of these therapies compared to anticoagulation alone. So I just, you know, there are plenty of case series um, certainly Zach's data that he presented last week is pretty intriguing, um, but in, until we at least compare it to heparin to have an idea of the baseline risk, um, and until we see how those patients are chosen in those case series, which isn't really ever explained in any of the ones I've read, I, I just, other than the very, very highest risk bleeding group, I don't see how we can look into these therapies right now. So then that leaves basically catheter-directed thrombolysis or half-dose thrombolysis. So looking at those two, um, it, it's been interesting to me to look at this data because I feel like catheter-directed thrombolysis is, is very popular. It's a very hip, very in thing. Um, I, there is one single randomized controlled trial that I can find, okay? It's Ultima. Seattle 2 is the other one that's most commonly referenced. It's a single arm trial, no control group, okay? Um, so you're talking about 60 patients um, from 2014. Uh, the patients were defined as submassive um, based on RV to LV ratio greater than one on an echo. So that certainly would count as submassive. Um, the primary endpoint was improvement in RV to LV ratio at 24 hours. And it showed a statistically significant improvement. So it met its primary endpoint. The in very interesting thing being there was no difference between the treatment and control group in RV to LV ratio when you followed out farther up. 
And again, does getting down to an average RVLV ratio of one, does that correlate to a decreased risk from a hemodynamic decompensation standpoint? I don't know. So um, certainly this was a relatively safe modality in the trial. Um, but again, question of is this the right group that they're even studying? Granted, it's only 59 patients, but zero hemodynamic compromise, zero death in a submassive PE cohort is questionable. So this is the, random, this is the randomized controlled trial of catheter-directed thrombolysis. So I, I, I continue to be dumbfounded. Like with this trial, it's, it's made its way to at least be mentioned in the guidelines. Not you know, they say you can consider it in either patients who are higher risk of bleeding or who have already failed systemic thrombolysis. And it's based off a 60-patient randomized trial compared to a control group that had no hemodynamic collapse. So again, I think this is an unknown. I think it's very possible this could be efficacious. I think we are far from proving it. I think we do have mounting data that it is safe, okay? Most of the studies looking at catheter-directed thrombolysis, most of the bleeding events were hemorrhage at the catheter insertion site and generally didn't cause a significant clinical problem. So probably is safe. I think the efficacy data is still pretty questionable. Um, so that leaves half-dose thrombolysis. Also, admittedly, based on one single randomized controlled trial. So Zach Khan mentioned last week that there were two registries that tried to replicate this data. Um, I have still not come across those trials. I don't know if they're unpublished or not. I went back specifically and looked at every single article in PubMed that cites this trial and none of them had the data that he referenced. So that, if that is true, that's a huge caveat to what I'm about to talk about, but I, I have not been able to find that data. So this is still currently, as far as I'm aware, the only and best trial of, of half-dose thrombolysis, so it's from 2013. And another important caveat for it, it was a radiographic diagnosis of intermediate risk um, based on the amount of lobes involved, essentially. Um, so that's an important caveat. When, when they looked at the data, many of the people had either a, a lab or imaging diagnosis of RV strain, but that wasn't their inclusion criteria, so that's an important caveat. That said, um, their protocol was to give 50 milligrams for anybody over 50 kilos. Everybody got 10 milligram bolus followed by the, the remainder of their dose over two hours. If you were less than 50 kilos, you got 0.5 mg per kg, so actually a significantly lower dose comparatively, or totally, I guess. Um, their primary endpoint was pulmonary hypertension defined by echo PA systolic pressure greater than 40, uh, as well as that plus recurrent pulmonary embolism. There were statistically significant improvement in the treatment group in both of those. This is another large caveat. In a vacuum, echo findings of pulmonary hypertension, I don't know what to do with that. It's something of an objective finding, certainly, um, but it's a pretty heavily calculated number, right? You take the TR jet, I think you square it, you multiply it by something, and then importantly, you add the RA pressure, which is almost completely estimated 
by either the RA size and or the size and respiratory distensibility of the IVC. So there's a reason that people who specialize in pulmonary hypertension don't call people pulmonary hypertension until they have a right heart cath, okay? Because you can severely over or, or underestimate the PA pressures based on an echo. That said, it's, it's still on the objective side of things, like it's an imaging modality. Um, and also importantly, zero bleeding events. They did have some mortality closer to what you would see in the other submassive registries and things like that. So maybe a better cohort, hard to say. Um, but the most striking data here are the PA systolic pressures. At 48 hours, you have a significantly better PA systolic pressure in the treatment group than the control group, admittedly a flawed endpoint in and of itself. But that persists out to two-year follow-up. Um, so very, very interesting. Again, I don't understand how this is the only randomized controlled trial of half-dose. Ultima is the only randomized controlled trial of, of catheter-directed. Catheter-directed gets mentioned in, in most of the guidelines, not necessarily recommended, but at least mentioned. Half-dose is only even mentioned in European society guidelines. And it's just, this is out there. We don't give any recommendation. It's not even consider this like you do catheter-directed in lower-risk people or people who have, obviously, you wouldn't give it in people who had already failed full dose. But, um, but interesting data nonetheless. So for me, both of these things are certainly pretty well shown to be safe at this point. Um, again, the caveat of I'd be interested to talk to Zach about where he got that data because a lot of the half-dose data is from a group in Arizona. There's also a group in China that's published a lot on it with fairly similar results. Um, so I would say both the, the existing data on both modalities show that it's relatively safe. Um, certainly with both of them, but especially I would say with catheter-directed, the efficacy is still a significant question. But to me, this is a way that this is, these are modalities that tip that risk balance benefit to where you can potentially be more aggressive in your submassive patients. Um, so along those lines, I wanted to present a couple of cases and see what people would do if they, like me, were faced with these patients. So uh, the first is a woman that you get called to see in the emergency department. She's 82 years old, relatively healthy, relatively functional presented with shortness of breath and is found to have bilateral main pulmonary artery embolism. She has a mildly elevated troponin, a mildly elevated BNP, an RV to LV ratio that is at least on the borderline of elevated. She is breathing comfortably, satting well on four liters nasal cannula, looks very non-toxic clinically, but is requiring eight micrograms per minute of norepinephrine to keep her MAP normal. You ask her specifically, have you ever been told your blood pressure runs low? She says no. Her lactate is 2.5. Not all that high, not, not completely low either. So who would do any anticoagulation alone? who would do 100 milligrams of TPA? Okay, three people. 
we got one anticoagulation for full dose thrombolysis. Uh, who would do half dose thrombolysis? Three, four, five. Who would do catheter directed thrombolysis? Who would t call Dr. Khan for a surgical embolectomy? One. No one else? Okay. So I actually did, uh, our vascular surgeons do a fair amount of TPA drips for DVTs. And so I talked to them and ended up doing kind of a poor man's catheter-directed thrombolysis, just put in a central line and dripped it at, this, at, at a milligram an hour. Um, and, you know, it's interesting the way you find things out. That's when I realized none of those studies ha are driven by endpoints. They generally give a fixed dose. Um, some of them in the lab will give, will give until they get a specific radiographic effect or a specific hemodynamic effect. But so the next day, she was on four micrograms of levofed. Still looked great, but still requiring, still, still a massive PE. So I, I didn't know what to do. I, I called Dan Hur, I called John Greenwood. I, I was like, I don't, I, what, what would you do here? So I think ultimately on day four, she finally got off the pressors. I think we only did the TPA for two days. She had a decrease in her RVSP on the second day on echo. I thought about re-imaging her. I didn't want to give her another die load. She had a creatinine of like 1.2, but um, so food for thought. Yes. The response of the audience is really interesting because this is as clear cut a case of acid PE as you can get. The guidelines are incredibly clear, and the data on acid PE is terrible. We say give full dose lytics, and here you are, very well schooled on all the literature and the guidelines. And pick something that doesn't even exist, yeah. basically know this, who don't give. It just shows that they fear people have from motives. Yet, there is seemingly zero fear for the patient that comes in with a little numbness in their big toe who's getting from motives. I think it's incredibly interesting. Yeah. Comment, not a question. Yeah, no, I agree. Right, and, and it's a good point, right? We just, I think there was... One person that gave full dose to a massive PE whose only increased bleeding risk was age, which is not an insignificant one. I mean, it has been shown in multiple trials to be a significant increase in bleeding when you get thrombolytics. But yeah. So.
but there, there's at least one meta-analysis, in P, specifically in PE patients, that you, uh, I think it's an age of over 75 is a significant increase in bleeding. And I think specific, I think specific, I'd have, I have to double check that. I think specific to ICH included in terms of the increased rate. There's, there's ways to risk stratify the mm -hmm. ICH if you have some history and, and often we do sometimes in our patients. So we know the patients, if we've had a recent MRI, if there's increased white matter hyperintensity, if there's increased cerebral microbeads, those patients are at risk for ICH. And so if you have that information, that's really nice and you might be able to use it. Yeah. So why, why do you stress uh, central line? I mean, she needs central line compressors, right? Yeah, part of it is, I mean, we've talked about this because. I think I've rubbed off on my partners, and I think we as a group probably are, um, are giving a decent amount of half dose and things like that. Um, you know, that's my question for like the ESC and the ACCP. These people that you're expectantly managing, how, how expectantly are you managing them, right? If, if you're wanting to be ready to give rescue thrombolysis, to me, and, and I, or I should say, when I'm giving half-dose thrombolysis, if it's not effective and two hours later they start getting hypotensive, then myself or, or worse, my partner after I sign out is faced with the choice of whether or not to do a central line in somebody who got TPA two hours ago. So to me, you know, um, anecdotally, one of the, one of the, things most stress is if you're giving TPA to people, try and get it more in the massive population, obviously. But if you can get your lines in before you give it, you're going to have a lot less problems. So part of it, you know, it's, it's, um, I have the same discussion around our post-cardiac arrest people. Their blood pressure is okay and they're oxygenating fine. Do they all need central lines and A lines? You know, I had, had one last night that I came on Pressure was fine, oxygenation was fine. And initially I was gonna, you know, I, my feeling is they're high risk enough for decompensation. We ought to just go ahead and do it when they're stable. And if we can pull them in 24 hours, great. Well, ended up doing the central line around 2 a.m. once they were on 25 of norepinephrine. And then ended up doing the A line at 655 when they coded. Um, so part of it for me is, you know, if you're gonna manage them expectantly, manage them expectantly. Have the central line in, um, have the A line in. For her, she was on pressors, right? So again, I was gonna give the lytics. She was, she, I didn't think it was gonna immediately solve her shock. So I wanted to get the central line in first. And then, you know, is there any degradation from, from the arm to the RA that can be avoided? You know, part of my thought was, well, this is next best thing to PA catheter directed. It's central catheter directed. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's there's some in vitro data that suggests there's an eddy created in front of the clots, and that it actually sort of blocks the blood flow and blocks the ability of the medicine to to get in there. But nobody's done nobody's done a study of PA catheter directed one milligram an hour drip versus central or or central or peripheral directed one milligram an hour drip. It's interesting. Well, I, mean, I agree with you about the preventative kind of yeah. I mean, high risk of decompensation. Right. But, um, but it's supposed to touch on 100% mm -hmm. of it regardless of where you get it. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, that's the thought. Yeah. And then the other thing is in terms of doing 
interventions post-TPI. I mean, uh, rescue PCI, we're going to the arteries. Right, right yeah. So, and that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right after TPA, or used, used to happen more, but yeah, it still does. Yeah, and you know, for me, it's a lot of, if I'm concerned about decompensation, I don't, and you know, I was pretty shocked listening to Zach's talk, talking about putting straight massive, bad massive PEs in an ambulance. And, and I, I agree with him. I, I do think you have, to, you have to underline that one, part of the reason I try and be aggressive with this is to potentially avoid the need to intubate these patients. So does everybody understand that risk? Okay, what, what happens to the LV afterload when you put somebody on, LV afterload when you put somebody on positive pressure ventilation? Goes up or down? LV afterload? Down, right. What happens to the RV afterload? Goes way up, right. So intubating somebody with potential RV failure already is a lot like giving somebody a huge push of phenylephrine who ha has acute LV failure, right. So that's how you, that's how you kill people, potentially. And so I, I agree with that. I, if, if forced with the choice of, of intubating somebody and then putting them in the ambulance with a massive PE, I would just put them in the ambulance. But um, you know, for me, if I'm already concerned about these people decompensating, I don't want to call over, talk to IR, get them accepted, put them in an ambulance. I don't know when the decompensation is going to come. And so I'm always in favor of, of things that I can do myself that I don't have to call in a consultant for. So that's, that's, that's a big part of it. So the other what do you do case, 49-year-old female, chronic DVD, DVT and PE on Coumadin, presented with abdominal pain, found to have a large intraperitoneal hematoma, went for XLAP to find the source of bleeding um, after she had persistent bleeding after Coumadin reversal. During the case, she had acute hypotension and hypoxia and came out on 25 of norepinephrine. Um, on the way up, got a CT angio um, compared to a month before that showed acute on chronic PE. Um, so you now have a patient post-op from a significant surgery with massive PE. So who wants to give just anticoagulation? Who wants to give full-dose thrombolysis? Who wants to give half-dose thrombolysis? Who wants to sign, it, sign this out to your partner to make the decision? So. I, I, this is another time I did the, the central line drip, and she actually, within six hours, came completely off of her norepinephrine. Um, so that's her. Um, there is a guy who has trained his lizards to, take, to pose for pictures. So not, not everything in 2017 is bad. <laughs> so things I want you to remember it's, it is important to know if you're giving advanced therapy to submassive patients, you are going against current guidelines. I think you can be justified in doing it, but it's important to know that walking in. And I think full dose with the current data, I think ultimately may be shown to be more safe than we think, but with the current data, giving full dose, you have to think in submassive patients, risks outweigh benefits. So if you can identify a higher risk, subgroup of submassive with something like a BOVA score, maybe it's worth considering, and or if you want to give a therapy such as catheter-directed or half-dose that has a decent amount of data showing a lower risk, you may be justified in doing so. Either way, it's really important that this is true shared decision-making. I have a very frank 
discussion with patients before I do this, I say, you have a type of pulmonary embolism that we don't know what to do with. No one has the right answer. A very good doctor would come along and tell you not to have the clot busting drug for this. But you, you don't have a very good doctor, you have me. And I'm recommending half dose or catheter director or whatever, so. All right, any questions? Yes, sir. I am, <clears throat> to reel it back basically to your first slide, um, your criteria used are effectively hemodynamic. But one of the things that concerns me most is when patients show up uh, with syncope, either having syncope immediately prior to it or on the way in. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty good size hemodynamic hit, even though they might have shaken it off. And in particular, as patients are older, um, I don't think they have the reserve to tolerate maybe something like that again. And they tend mm -hmm. to push me more towards aggressive therapy. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I mostly agree. Uh, it's a very good point. So Gold Haber at MGH is one of the big PE people. And in one of his review articles, he actually specifically mentions syncope as a criteria for massive. Okay. And there are a couple um, like registry datas that in their meta-analysis, the, the risk increase with syncope is pretty similar to, him, to persistent hypotension. I agree in that way. Um, one of the risk scores specifically tried to look at whether syncope um, was a uh, independent risk factor for mortality. And what they found, I forget whether it was BOVA or another one, what they found was um, the systolic less than 100 was. And if, and if you use that, the, the people who had syncope but a systolic greater than 100, syncope was not an independent risk factor by itself. So I don't know. I have always, in most of my talks, I have said syncope, certainly clot in transit, probably pushes you to a massive equivalent um, or certainly a very high risk submassive. Um, similarly, worsening respiratory failure. And a lot of that for me goes, goes back to, excuse me, um, I really don't want to intubate these people to the point where I would subject them to the risk of certainly at least the half-dose thrombolysis. <clears throat> you know, if they're, if they're moving towards, if they're on a, a max high-flow nasal cannula, at that point I'd call them a massive equivalent. To me, I'd much rather have the risk of bleeding from, from thrombolysis than the risk of dying from my intubation. But I agree, I, I, and there's d decent literature to support syncope certainly getting you to a significantly higher risk of massive group and maybe even to a massive equivalent. Very good point. All right. No surgical embolectomies. It's disappointing. Thanks, everybody.